You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to, uh, yeah, uh, Sunday morning gathering. I'm used to saying that every time I come up here or whatever, but you've already been welcome. Uh, my name is Scott. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the village, and I have the privilege of getting to uh, walk us through the end of John chapter 3 today. So if you would, uh, just join me in prayer um, and ask God for help uh, for the rest of our time together. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for revealing yourself to us this morning. Um, you did in Jesus, you did with the fathers back in the Old Testament, uh, you did with Adam and Eve, and you're still doing that same work of revealing yourself to your people today. And so uh, by your spirit, by your word, um, as we hear and sing uh, and think about Jesus, God, would you make yourself known to us today that we aren't it, uh, that we are not above all, if there's a need in any of us this morning where we need to be needed, where we're striving to be seen and visible and valued uh, above everything else, God, would you let our hearts rest in seeing you uh, and you becoming visible to us and you being the most valuable thing to us and us finding our rest and our joy and our hope in that. Uh, God, thank you for today. Do work in us. Help us uh, as we talk and listen and interact with your word. Um, Let your spirit do what it will. uh, And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So, uh, before I was on staff here at the village, uh, I actually worked as a, I was a writer uh, on a marketing team with a, a big uh, national bank. And if you've seen The Office before, then um, you know there's one word that stirs up lots of uh, panic and maybe fear and all kinds of stuff around The Office. And that word uh, is, is downsizing, right? Uh, unless you're Dwight Schrute, who loves downsizing, that idea is great to him. It causes lots of fear uh, and panic when that buzzword starts uh, being passed around the water cooler or in emails or whatever. And so uh, shortly after I actually joined the bank, uh, there was talk of downsizing, except they didn't use that word. Uh, they didn't use the word downsizing. They used the word restructuring. Uh, right? That's kind of what they called it or whatever. Except the problem was no one told us what the structure was supposed to be. Like, what were we restructuring into? And so uh, our little team, which was not uh, in any way tied to like directly making the company money. Uh, I was part of a marketing team, but it was an internal marketing team. So like customers didn't see a darn thing that we did. It was all like employee engagement and fun, goofy stuff, spending lots of money on things that like Pretty much no one needed to boost employee morale, so we were like, restructuring meant was that we were on uh, the chopping block. So we would assume, like every day going into work, that there'd be some email in our inbox about, uh, gosh, this like new boss, or hey, like you're going to have to find another boss somewhere else uh, because you no longer have a job here. Uh, That's what we thought every day when we came to the office, just expecting to see something waiting in uh, in our inbox. And so under the threat of like almost certain uh, irrelevance in the company, um, I made myself as unfireable as possible. Um, I became the the go-to expert on this 
really like this new platform, new is kind of relative. It felt like it was built by Microsoft in like 1998, but it was a new platform they started using for, for internal website stuff. Uh, I became the, the go-to editor for like all the words, uh, digital and print or whatever in our uh, division, even some stuff from, from corporate marketing came by me. Uh, so stuff passed by my desk a lot. I, I was the ghostwriter for some of our uh, vice presidents in our Division, I became their voice uh, in some way. I became the guru on like the new branding guidelines and we rolled out a new uh, brand campaign or whatever. I knew those things inside and out and I was the guy that would send the email to all the people who had like sparkly fonts and like random quotes at the bottom of their email signature to tell them, hey, could you please not do that and instead put what everyone else has because we all have to do the same thing now. I, was, I became that guy uh, at that point in time. And so in a division of 12,000 people, I made sure that I became a lot of things. I was like the voice for a lot of stuff. I was the man behind the curtain, or uh, as some might know the phrase, like I was the brand, or at least the brand enforcer uh, in some ways for those 12,000 people, even if they didn't know it. But I didn't care because the people that didn't know it were the higher-ups who were in charge of all of the restructuring, right? I wanted to make sure that that they knew who I was because their voice at the end of the day was the one that mattered to me. So because when faced with the likelihood of becoming irrelevant in a restructuring company, man, I, I needed to be irreplaceable, like so valuable that they could not afford to let me go. And all that it cost me, like after I did that and it worked and I had a job and I got to leave, right? You can't fire me. I quit, uh, that kind of a thing. It worked, but it, it cost me my joy at that job. Now, I loved most of the people that I worked with, but when my heart was set on trying to be the most visible and the most valuable, then my coworkers, they became in some ways my competitors. Or the work that I genuinely enjoyed doing, like being creative with other graphic designers and artists and other thinkers and stuff like that, there were days when it stopped being a place to make good work and it started to be a place where Man, I was making myself into something or someone that mattered more to a certain group of people. And instead of being eager to pass on what I was learning, what I knew, what I did, how to do it, all that stuff so that we could all get more stuff done, I wanted to make sure that I was seen as essential to everything, right? I was the center of it all, both in my own head in terms of what I was concerned with, who I was concerned with, and I was the literal center of way too many people's workflows, but I was employed. I, I survived the, down, the downsizing and the restructuring. It worked, but again, the question is like, at what cost? Not just to me, but to my coworkers. At what cost to the bank and the company that I was a part of? At what cost would I be okay with being seen and valued and striving for that above all? And so today, we're gonna see John the Baptist and his disciples confronted with the reality of restructuring and their line of work. Gospel work, right? A ministry about paving the way for Jesus. And their competition, funny enough, is actually Jesus himself. And the wild thing is that as John's disciples let their fear of becoming irrelevant kind of take over a little bit, John meets their insecurity not with a call to become irreplaceable or unfireable in the eyes of the Lord. He strangely meets them with the exact opposite message. We have to downsize, and not just for God's glory, but crazy enough for our joy as well. 
So this morning we're going to get to examine how the need to be relevant, uh, the need to be needed, shows up in our own gospel work this morning. Whether you minister at home or at work at school, like on the, on the field or in the locker room, whether it's formal or informal, paid or unpaid, whatever, like how can we see it and what can we do about that need when it shows up in our hearts? So the, the main burden for this morning's text, text is this, that when Jesus is above all, we can rejoice in the gospel work that we're given. And we're going to look at gospel work today in a few different lights, how it always involves other people, uh, how it doesn't revolve around us, and how it never evolves beyond Jesus. And yes, I made sure really hard that those three words rhymed, and that was not for you, that was just for me, all right? Like, that just made me feel really good uh, about the sermon. So we're going to jump into our first point this morning, that gospel work always involves other people. We'll look at uh, the first few verses here in John uh, 3, 22 uh, through 36. We'll look at uh, 22 through 26. It says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. So, look, Jesus' cousin, uh, John the Baptist, he's back. All right, we, we haven't talked about him since chapter 1, uh, but now he's back in the picture. He's still doing the same thing he was doing before. He's just baptizing people, right? But this time, he's not the only one baptizing Jesus has also started baptizing people, or at least overseeing his disciples as they baptize. We hear that's what he was doing in uh, chapter 4. And this was new for him. Uh, it's, it's been a couple weeks, right, since we've all hung out. But when we last left off, Jesus had been hanging out in the city of Jerusalem uh, during Passover. It was crazy. The city was full and bustling with all kinds of people coming in to observe this big annual festival. And and so we saw Jesus uh, kick some money changers out of the temple. We saw him chat with this guy, Nicodemus, in the middle of the night. And then uh, sometime after that, Jesus decides to head out of the city with his disciples uh, to the Judean countryside, into the, the rural part of town outside of the city. And they go there to baptize folks who were eager to repent and just embrace their need for a Savior. And Jesus did this even though John and his disciples were already doing the exact same thing, maybe 20 or 30 miles away in a place called uh, Enon near Salim, somewhere like in Samaria probably. So I want you to put yourself in John's place. All right, his literal niche is to baptize people. Like that's what he's known by. There's a million Johns in the Bible. When you're trying to figure out which one you're talking about, John the Baptist. Oh, that one, right? It's literally what he's known by. That's his shtick. So John's own cousin, Jesus, who he's been hyping up as the one who's not just going to baptize with water. He's going to baptize with the Spirit as well. He decides to dip his toes into the very ministry that up until that point had only been John's. And Jesus starts that ministry only like a day's journey away. It's when, a, like, when a, a dollar general opens up across the street from like a dollar tree and you're like, what are you doing, bro? Like, we're just cutting into each other's market here, right? We're not hurting, we're not helping each other. We're just hurting each other here. So th that's kind of what this is like. You're, you're hurting both of us. What, what would you do if your like hotshot cousin decided to start a ministry just like yours, 
uh, that, that you were known for, just kind of right down the street, less than a day's journey away. How would that make you feel? Well, we know how it made John's disciples feel. This is not so great, right? So they run up to John and said, Rabbi, like, first of all, some dude's trying to argue with us over theology about baptism purification stuff and what that all means or whatever. But, but now we're seeing this guy, this guy that you were with down by the river that you've been hyping up. He's doing your thing and everyone's starting to go to him now instead. And so look, the guys who like decided to hitch themselves to this gnarly dude in camel hair eating locusts and honey and stuff you get at Jungle Jams or whatever, they're probably not following John because they think that he's some next big mainstream sensation, right? That's probably not what they're thinking. But still, it's probably a little unsettling to think that, that maybe the new guy that you've been paving the way for all along is about to make you and your work irrelevant. And so insecurity hits, right? And this is a, a very human response that we see from John's disciples that we should all appreciate because we've all been here, right, in some way or another. It's the new kid at school who is like now getting all of your friends' attention, right? It's the one guy that you stuck up for at work or on the team and maybe even showed him the ropes and now they're seen as the rising star instead of you. It's it's that person who's like telling the same joke as you, the one that you told just a few minutes ago, but they're the ones getting all the laughs, like, or the very real cousin in your family that you feel like you are constantly in competition with at your family gatherings. It's the human need to be relevant on display here, like to be on the top and to stay that way. And here's what you need to know this morning, is that that need to be relevant doesn't come from other people. Other people aren't the real threat, right? It might sound crazy since this whole thing with John's disciples wouldn't be an issue if it weren't for other people. Like if they were the only game in town, if they were the lone voice crying out in the wilderness, which is how John the Baptist started, right? There, there wouldn't be a problem if other people didn't show up debating theology or stealing our ministry idea or whatever. Like squeeze out the competition and the problem is solved, right? Let's play that out. Let's say John's disciples could have been the only game in town or like the best that there was. They could have been the one tagged in every Facebook post, right? When someone's like, hey, I'm new to the area. What's the best ministry that I could connect with? And everyone's like, John the Baptist. That's just common after common. After that. They could have been that ministry. They could have secured their future, right? The biggest crowds and everything else. All they would have had to do is overshadow Jesus and the work that he was actually doing. Just squeeze out the competition, right? And in doing so, undercut the very reason that they were doing any of this stuff in the first place. To get the hearts of the people ready to receive their Messiah. You see, it's possible to maximize a ministry by minimizing Jesus. That's dangerous. And our hearts, like, just like theirs, can very easily and very quickly go there the rising star or the one who got all the laughs or the show-off cousin, whatever, your insecurity doesn't come from them. They are no more a threat to you than Jesus was to John's disciples. That need to be relevant, irreplaceable, to be made a big deal of, that's already in there. All anybody can do is expose it. And by God's grace, it will be exposed. 
life involves other people, especially the Christian life, where we're called to make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus who are called to baptize more new disciples of Jesus. And so if the need to be needed is hanging out in you somewhere, then trust me, the community and the mission of God is going to feel like a threat to that need as, as God calls and as you encounter more and more different kinds of people. And the scariest thing of all is that you might try and maybe even succeed at satisfying your need to be needed with that community and that mission of God that it would hide out under the guise of gospel work or giftedness or just wanting to make sure that people are cared for and protected, when in reality it's just using Jesus' name to get people to pay more attention to us. The real threat is not out there. The real threat is in here. And so the answer to our need to be relevant when that shows up in our life can't be to simply wish that no one else was around. Right? To, to wish people away, to wish that the competition was just gone. That's the opposite of Jesus' call to go and make disciples of all nations. It can't be to simply do things by ourselves. We're part of a community called to be members of a local church ministering together. And it can't be simply to keep being who we are and doing what we've got and keeping that as some kind of status quo because if we're actually doing gospel work, then we should hope to be seeing more and more people come to know Jesus and then co-labor with us. And if we are aware of the scale of God's mission, right, to take the gospel to the nations, then we're going to welcome all the help that we can get. So the answer to our need to be relevant is to simply let God reckon with his competition that's already hanging out here inside of our hearts. Whatever it is that lets us see co-laborers in Christ as competition or Jesus himself as a means to our fame. And this passage uh, shows us three things that might uncover that a bit about the way that God works. All right. First of all, God works through other people simultaneously as you. He needs more people than just you. You are not enough. Your group, your team, your favorite nonprofit, whatever it is that you're doing, the village church, Whatever it is that you're a part of is not enough to carry out his global mission to make disciples. He needed both Jesus and John and all of the disciples to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish then and there. And he needs all of his people today to accomplish his purposes right now. Do you love and celebrate the fact that God wants and uses people other than yourself? Or are you bummed? Do you take it personally, like when someone goes to someone else, you take that as an indictment in some way against you? God also works through other people differently, right? Look, we don't know specifically what John's disciples were arguing about with that certain Jew. Uh, we have no idea, but there are, there are people who have different thoughts and beliefs and plans than you, and God is using them. Like, is it possible for you to be settled in your ways and in your convictions and for you to give thanks for others who have different ways and different convictions than you, even though you might be living for the exact same thing? Are the fences of orthodoxy, like just basic, right, core Christian belief, are the fences of orthodoxy only as big as what you've built in your backyard? Or are your ways the only right ways of doing things or thinking about things? Or, or can maybe God choose and use someone different than you? And can you be thankful for them? And lastly, God works through others unexpectedly. 
No doubt John and his disciples decided to baptize where they baptized because water was plentiful there, right? Like if you're if you're going to do a baptism ministry, you should probably make sure there's water around, right? It seems kind of important. So we can map out and we can plan and we can prepare and put ourselves in the most strategic place to accomplish all kinds of things. And then some dude wanders out into the countryside and folks just start flocking to him. Like, what is that about? I read all the leadership books. I scoped out the, the land. I, I listened to all the podcasts, did the cleanse, followed the steps, all of those things, right? But the wind, John 3, the wind blows where it will. The Spirit does what He wants to do through whoever He wants, wherever He wants. And sometimes our best laid plans just don't pan out the way that we thought, while people who just seem to be shooting from the hip are enjoying the ripe harvest that we plan to a T for. Is that cause for jealousy? Or is that cause for rejoicing that God's moving and doing stuff? Do we want the Spirit to blow where He wills, or do we only want the wind to blow at our backs? Life involves other people. Gospel work will always involve other people, and other people will expose our fear of being replaced, our need to be relevant. Of our hearts, we can let that need to be needed hijack who we are and why we exist, not for self-preservation, but to give ourselves away. That, that the whole wide world might receive the grace of God that comes through Jesus. And, and isn't it funny that Jesus, God in the flesh, through whom everything that was made, was made, he stooped down and said, hey, John, do you think you could pave the way for me? Or says, like, hey, Village Church, like, you want to be my coworkers as we carry out this mission together to help me bring this all the way through to the end? Isn't it curious that the last person who needs to be needed or who needed help with anything is the first one to offer the least likely a role in his work? If you're willing to let your need to be above all confronted in this way, more than becoming like Jesus, you will find that Jesus who is extending the same offer to you this morning. When Jesus is above all, we can rejoice in the gospel work that we're given and that other people are given as well. And that kind of leads us to our second main point this morning. And this is number two, gospel work doesn't revolve around you. All right, so how does John respond to the insecurity of his disciples? As it shows up, they come up running up with this question. Here's what he says. This is 27 through 30. John answered, a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. In other words, John says, know your role. I know that my role on Sundays is usually like the the gather and scatter guy, right? Adam did a great job. Uh, this morning, like I just usually say, like this, this, I'm the dude that says the same thing every Sunday morning when I come up here at the beginning of stuff that we're a community formed by the gospel, sent on God's mission to make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus so that God might be made known in every part of the city through every part of our lives. I can say that in my sleep all the time, ever pretty sure when I die that will be on my tombstone. <laughs> and it's going to be the, like, the birth year and the death year. And if you zoom in on the dash in between, it's just going to be those words in really tiny font. 
Because that's all I did, like pretty much when I was alive. That's me. But, but as much as I value that language, and that's just embedded in me that defines who we are and declares that explicitly, it is just as important to define who we are by who we are not. And this is exactly what John the Baptist is doing for his disciples here. He says some things about who he is and who they are, but more loudly and clearly than anything else, he's telling them who he's not. He is not the Christ, which might seem super basic, that he's not Jesus, right? But he obviously felt the need to remind his disciples that, hey, you've heard me say that I'm not Jesus, right? You bear me witness about this, that I'm not the Christ, But he had to say that because they were jealous of people going to Jesus, the actual Christ, instead of celebrating that fact, which might sound nuts, but we do the exact same thing every time that we're bummed, every time we're threatened or feel personally attacked, when people we know go to someone else to get what they need, or when others find life-giving, life-changing grace in Jesus' words or his presence through someone else. And our first thought isn't, man, isn't Jesus great? but it's, dang it, why didn't they come to me? What did I do? What did I say? What do they have that I don't have? And here we see the other side of of the coin, that not only will gospel work always involve other people, but gospel work also doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around Jesus, and that's really, really good news for us. Uh, Last week and a half uh, or so has been rough, for the O'Donoghue family. It's been a little wild in our house, lots of reasons. Uh, I'll throw myself a pity party for a minute. Um, so last week, we had all five of our kids, uh, Hamilton City School, some of you live this dream, remote learning all week last week uh, or whatever. And so 10-year-old, 9-year-old, 7-year-old, two 5-year-olds all having a classroom somewhere in our house uh, or whatever all week. And look, now, Kelly, uh, my wife, for as long as I've known her, 18, 19 years, if I did the math right, like she has always wanted to serve on jury duty, but has not had that opportunity until last week. <laughs> and so she's been selected to serve on a two-week trial beginning the same day that we now have to have five simultaneous classrooms in our home. And I'm trying to figure out something to say today, right? Um, so look, I, I'm not a dad who doesn't love being at home. I love being with my kids and doing the parenting thing. It's not me playing mom, right? Or babysitting. It's called being a dad, right? Like that's where I'm at. Amen. Uh, but I, I wanted things to go really well. I, I, want, I didn't want folks to think that the JV team was at home with the kids, right? <laughs> Throughout the week. And so I was running from room to room and Chromebook to Chromebook, like playing tech support and librarian and lunch lady and answering questions about absolute numbers and like, What's a tuffet and why would little Miss Muffet want to sit on one? And I still don't know. <laughs> Trying to sit in five different places at one time to make every, everyone click the same thing, the right thing at the right time. And it was just nuts, right? I was not thriving at all in that moment. It was not sustainable even for a short four-day school week. So I had to learn to be a little bit more hands-off, all right? Like, to let their part in the classroom, like, even though the classroom was at home, to just let that be their part between them and their teacher without me as, like, a third wheel or, like, I'm the hub of something. And, And weirdly, it took work for me to step back from that, where my default was to let myself step into the center of their relationship with their teachers or what they should be doing or whatever. I had to purposefully make myself step back and make room for them to listen and to learn, to follow, to mess up, 
right? And then figure it out or to ask for help or whatever without it having to be some reflection of me or how I'm doing as a dad, right? JV or varsity, who's on it for the week? But rather to see it as an opportunity for them to take ownership of their education. It's life lesson in four days, right? But this same dynamic can play out in our discipleship as well. Whether it's like friendship, family stuff, uh, formal thing through groups or regular meetups you have with people or whatever, like it's really easy for us to put ourselves in the center of someone else's relationship with Jesus to make sure that someone is thinking and living and doing what they're supposed to do according to Jesus. And some of us, all of us, I think in some way we probably are prone to put another person or a, a particular ministry or church or whatever in the place of Jesus. That, that happens sometimes. We can hitch our spiritual vitality to the time or the attention, the faith, uh, the counsel of somebody else. And, and that's not healthy, but that's stuff that the Spirit gets to work out of us as he matures us over time. And this morning, John is confronting a group of his disciples who think that what everyone else needs is more John and less Jesus. They seem way more concerned with folks coming to them than they do with anyone ever getting to Jesus. And if that approach to discipleship plays itself out as it does in the church, in discipleship relationships, high school, college ministries, like you don't get a community of disciples who are growing in their dependence on Jesus together. All you get is a bunch of codependent, spiritually malnourished men and women and kids. See it. To put a picture to it, uh, later in John, John 15, we'll hear Jesus like give us a picture of the way that we are to relate to him. And the picture is of him as the vine. Like where all the nourishment is stored, where it all flows, and then us as the branches shooting off from him in different directions as we're supplied with all that we need from him. But the picture that John's disciples paint, uh, this one of codependence, John more than Jesus, looks more like a tumbleweed where there is no vine, but each branch is, is wrapped and tangled and choking out every other branch because they mistake one another and even themselves for being the vine. They believe gospel work revolves around themselves. And John is saying, no, remember, I'm not the Christ and neither are you. And that's really bad news to the ears of a heart that needs to be needed. Right, just to state it plainly, healthy disciples relate with people in a way that makes it painfully obvious that they are not what everyone else needs Jesus is. Right? I don't insert that in my uh, like gather and scatter, scatter spiel on Sunday mornings, but, but every that not only is Jesus the Christ, but that we are not. And while that kind of gospel culture that plays out over time is is a hostile environment to our need to be above all, that same gospel culture will be wonderfully hospitable to those who are just ready to forsake what the world would deem as relevance and who are tired of being tumbleweeds and want to give themselves to dependence on Jesus. Because in the gospel, we are seen and valued and invited by a Jesus who gave himself up for us already and gives us the most relevant work that has ever been done. It frees us up to fill the role that we're meant to play and to stop pretending we're someone that we're not. And so above and beyond telling us who we're not, John kind of uh, reminds us all of what this role can look like. So three things. First, our role is to receive. You can't receive anything, even one thing, 
unless it's given to you from heaven. So are you content with the gospel work that God has given you? Or do you wish that it was more? Something else different, bigger, smaller, growing, shrinking. D.A. Carson on this passage says this. He said, For John the Baptist to have wished he were someone else, called to serve in a way that many would judge more prominent, would simply be jealousy by any other name. If the person he envied were the Messiah himself, he'd be canceling out the excellent ministry God had given him. Unlike many preachers for whom humility is little more than a show, John meant what he said. Both John and Jesus were given their roles by heaven, and John was entirely content with his. You see, like John didn't see Jesus' ministry as a slight to him. John saw his own ministry as a gift from heaven. Like that changes everything. If we saw what God placed before us today, not what he placed before us yesterday or what we want him to place before us, the fears in this room would be quieted. The second thing is this about a role. Our role is to be a friend. Sounds corny, but that's what's in here, all right? Uh, John uses the analogy of, of being the best man at a wedding to describe his role in discipleship. Jesus is the groom and God's people are the bride. And to make his point obvious, he says that the bride doesn't belong to the best man, right? The best man doesn't write the vows, doesn't say the vows, doesn't fulfill the vows. The covenant relied on the groom. In other words, other people's relationship with Jesus is ultimately between them and Jesus. Right? You can be a friend, right? but you can't make them get together. You can't keep them together. You can't cause them to separate. Don't play the third wheel. Like, that's not your role. It's not even within your power to do those things. And there's freedom to be found in realizing that. And there's also a great amount of joy, John says. Because we do get to be a friend of the groom. That's kind of fun. We get to stand and we get to be a witness to the work that God's doing in the people around us. We get to be a witness to whether they're actually hearing the voice of Jesus sometimes in their life. Because Best men, right? They know what the voice of the groom sounds like. They're buds, right? So we get to remind them of the vows that they made. Be a witness to that. The vow specifically that Jesus made to them that while they were yet a sinner, he laid down his life for them, knit his life to theirs to cover their sin and to remove their shame, to love them and nourish them and cherish them forever by grace and grace alone. And you can celebrate when that relationship first begins, and you can celebrate uh, when it shows little evidences of growth and grace that can only be seen up close over a long period of time as folks figure out what life with Jesus looks like over years and decades. We get to be a friend of the groom and the bride, of Jesus and his disciples. And if we'll receive as witnesses and encouragers of what God's doing, does that does that describe how you see yourself in discipleship? And lastly, our, our role is to make room. John says that Jesus must increase, but he must decrease. In other words, Jesus, he's going to be a big deal. There's no stopping it, and we shouldn't want to. And John's role is to be less of a big deal, to take himself out of the limelight as Jesus steps into it. And this isn't self-deprecating. Right? This, this is not John saying he's a filthy wretch that can't do anything or uh, he doesn't have a pouty face while he's doing this. Like This is not false humility. He's saying it with complete joy, it says, even though decreasing isn't what any of us naturally do, especially when our need to be needed kicks in. 
we want to make ourselves bigger and, and louder, which is why decreasing is something we have to actually actively do. It's work to take ourselves out of the center of other people's relationship with Jesus when that's what's normal. When maybe you're the one who introduced them to the Lord or you've been with them through lots of crazy, tough things or whatever, we have to check ourselves to know our role and to make sure that they're learning what it is to need Jesus more than you. And they can learn that because of you. When I meet with somebody for the first time, I, I try to explicitly tell them, if it's like an ongoing thing or counseling or whatever, that I am not what they need. Right? I, I don't have their fixes or their hope or their spiritual vitality locked up in a bottle or in a jar somewhere, hidden away. Like I'm not holding it hostage or whatever. Like Jesus has what they need. And if he might minister to somebody through me, then that's a joy for both of us that we both get to enjoy. And I go out of my way to say that, and hopefully I relate with them in that way, because I need to remind them and to remind myself that, that our joy and our freedom, both of ours, is not. So that means we have to give Jesus room to prove that. We can't spoon feed every answer because we want folks to wrestle with the Bible and the Spirit and their conscience on their own. We can't always tell them what to do. Right? Because we know folks are prone to just doing things because that's what someone told them to do. Not like We want people to do stuff because that's what Jesus said that we should do. We want them to learn to follow Jesus long after you or I or whoever is dead and gone. So look, you listen for the group's voice, right? Go listen. Sounds familiar at all. That's what we get to do. It even means sometimes letting people go. Maybe it's sending them somewhere or maybe it's watching them go somewhere else or, or nowhere else after months and years of investment, maybe even going somewhere that we wouldn't pick for him. And instead of like trying to, to tie a ball and chain around their ankles to keep them here with us, to help them be more dependent on us, we get to help them discern between the spirit and the flesh, the truth and the lies, to let them follow where they think the spirit is leading them. Because the last thing that we should want to do is be one of John's disciples trying to figure out a way to keep someone dependent on me or on my church, when in reality they were just trying to, to get to Jesus all along. And the one thing that we should want more than anything is to make and mature and multiply disciples of Jesus who know and trust his voice, right? Who can then make and mature and multiply new disciples in Jesus over and over and over again, even if the village is nowhere to be found. Not only will gospel work always involve others, but it doesn't revolve around you or me. So we get to know our role. That when Jesus is above all, we can rejoice in the gospel work that we're given, even though it takes work and it can hurt and it can feel slow or seem to go backwards before it goes forwards because we, knew, we know who's at the center of that. We know who it revolves around. And, and this is where John, uh, the gospel writer, not the Baptist, but this is where morning, who Jesus is. And this is our third point, that gospel work doesn't evolve past Jesus. 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. So for a lot of different reasons right now, I'm just kind of, I'm reflecting uh, on what I'm going to leave behind in my work. Uh, and not work at the bank, but work here. Gospel work here is part of the village. Uh, a more positive note, what, what I'm going to pass on to people, right, when I leave. What would I, what would I hand off to who? And, and when I'm whatever, like who's going to be thinking about this or that? Or who's going to be thinking about them? Uh, how will the words on Sunday change? Who's going to say that and what are they going to say and who, how are they going to edit that? How dare they, right? Random stuff like that. And it's weird to think about like being replaced uh, at, at some point because that's scary. It's the need to be needed. But it's also a lot real. I can make myself unfireable. I cannot make myself undiable. I mean, Jesus can do that. That will happen bef- like after he comes back, but before then, like I... I will do my best to like die up here while I'm saying the Sunday morning welcome. Like I'll hang on that long, but I can't keep myself up here forever. Here's the question at the bottom of my, my random reflections. Who am I entrusting you to when I'm gone? And look, there are a ton of men and women here um, who are mature and wise, both beyond their a great encouragement to me, it bolsters my hope and lots of ways to see you guys. But at the end of the day, Like, I'm not entrusting you to yourselves. I'm entrusting you to Jesus. Succession plans, pathways for development, trainings, deacon stuff, elder stuff, membership stuff, all of that stuff has to happen. But I will take my last breath with ease, not because so-and-so is a great preacher or this person brews the best pot of coffee every time they're on for hospitality team. Like, but I'll take my last breath with ease because Jesus is really, really good. And he's above all. And he is of heaven. And after I'm out of here, like he's still going to be bearing witness to you of what he has seen and what he has heard up there. And you can hear and trust his voice because there wasn't a bit of the spirit that he didn't have. And there wasn't a bit of the father's love that he didn't know. And he's made that all available here to you. And I know that he alone can give you and everybody who comes after you belief, and eternal life. So I get why John the Baptist would be joyful, not not jealous, knowing that Jesus had come on the scene because John and his work had never been more relevant as when Jesus was finally being seen and noticed and flocked to for who he was and what he was doing. Like, that's what his ministry was all about from the beginning, preparing people's hearts to receive Jesus when he showed up. And that's our ministry too to prepare folks for Jesus because he already has shown up. John was sent before Jesus. We're sent after Jesus, but we're both sent to point towards him. And while the world measures your relevance by the, maybe the size of your crowds or followers or financial security, the likes to get what people think of you, whatever, John would measure your relevance by what people think of Jesus after they've spent time with you. If and when Jesus shows up, a big deal about, by what we depend on, by what seems to be most relevant in our lives to have and to hold and to to pass on, or would they more quickly recognize uh, a logo or a podcast or a diet or the Enneagram? I'm not knocking on the Enneagram. It's fine. Depending on the answer, it might actually expose what we think is most relevant to us. Is that Jesus? Or have you evolved 
beyond that. There is no other vine to be found beyond the gospel, only tumbleweeds. And the answer to the question of who am I entrusting you to when I'm gone is really whatever I'm entrusting you and myself to today. So this is the last that we'll see in here directly from John the Baptist here in this book. His, his parting words, like from his mouth, is he must increase, but I must decrease. That's the last that we hear from him directly. That was his succession plan, boiled down all the way. He was entrusting himself, his disciples, everyone who would come after him into the care of the one who really was the Christ. So John the Gospel writer reminds us here in these last few verses, as he already has and he will continue to do over and over and over again in John, who this person is that both Johns are calling us to believe, who they're calling us to entrust with our lives, to set our seal to, our our families, our friends, our churches, who are we leading them to entrust? They're both bragging on Jesus. They're not prescribing a church growth program, right, requiring a seminary degree or a 10-step plan. John's gospel work, both of John's gospel work it never evolves past Jesus because there's simply no one and no thing more relevant to the needs and the hopes of the world or to you. And so on one hand, like never evolving past Jesus, it'll make you really irrelevant. And on the other hand, never evolving past Jesus will make you more relevant to what God is actually working for and to what the world actually needs more than you can imagine. Not because the world needs you, but because the world needs Jesus. And so do you. And so when Jesus is above all, we can rejoice in the gospel work that he has given to us. And so I'm just going to simply end to Jesus. Is what you hope to entrust other people, your family, yourself to, is that what you're actually entrusting you to right now, today, in this moment? Like, Do you know what Jesus is like? Do you know what he's done for you? Living and dying in your place, taking away every sin for free. If you would just believe in him and granting you righteousness and peace and joy, taking away your shame and your guilt, giving you the spirit and the father's love, all that he has can be yours. And and just because you've entrusted your life to him once, if you're one of those folks in these rooms, are you entrusting your life to him today? Is that the way that you're living out your life with Jesus? Where yet? Does Jesus feel relevant to you? Do you feel relevant to Jesus? Is there some stuff that needs to be reckoned with this morning? So what's going to happen? Band, you guys can come on up. I want to just leave you guys with some questions. There'll be some stuff up on the screen. I want to invite you to just reflect on this word and how good and great Jesus is and also what it looks like for maybe you to, to decrease and your life. And as you consider that stuff, like, I want to invite you to come up to the, the table to invite and participate in communion. Uh, there's uh, little cups up here with a, a wafer and a juice uh, thing, and that represents the, the body of Christ that was broken for us on the cross and the blood of Jesus that was shed for us on the cross in order to make peace with God on our behalf. If you're a believer, you've sifted through your hearts and make sure that you're good with the Lord, right? And if you're not, if you need somebody to talk to, if you're not a believer here this morning, we would love to talk with you. There'll be a a couple of people out there by that red tree. I'll be uh, back here along the back wall. If anybody wants to talk, would love to chat with you about anything that God might be stirring up, uh, up in you this morning. All right? So take a few minutes, reflect, pray, 
partake in communion, sing with the band, uh, and then we'll continue worshiping this morning as we close out. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for entrusting our lives into Jesus' hands, entrusting your church into the work and life and ministry of Christ. And God, I pray that the Village Church will be a church that is dependent on you and on the gospel, that we would never move beyond that. And that the people who come here, that while their flesh might scream and feel like they're someplace hostile because they're being asked to step away, that they would find rest and that their souls would find something hospitable. That where they are tired and weary, where they don't know where to turn or what to do, God, that they would find respite and rest and joy here knowing that they can stop pretending to be above it all or trying to make themselves that way or become something that they're not, but just letting you be who you are. So God, show up to us this morning as you may have already been doing in some of us today. And would you allow us to respond with worship, whether that looks like repentance, reconciliation with a brother or sister here, whether it looks like faith in rejoicing and coming to know you for the first time or remembering who you are for the millionth time. Help us to find joy in you and what you've given us and what we get to receive from you because of your gospel work on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.